Hello and welcome back to the Great Woman Artist Podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Last week we interviewed the fantastic painter Louise Giovanelli and today I couldn't be more excited to share with you an interview with Bloom Cardenas on her incredible grandmother, Nikki de Samfell. But before we get to this, I am delighted to say that this episode is generously supported by Christie's Auction House, whose galleries in London are taking on a new colour this Halloween. From the grim and eerily strange to the distorted and fascinatingly dark, their upcoming selling exhibition entitled Macabre will look at the treatment of the macabre subject in art through the ages. Curated with renowned contemporary artist Benjamin Spires, you'll see uncanny depictions by Marlene Dumas and Julie Curtis next to hair-raising subjects and old master paintings. Renaissance and Baroque drawings share space with the arcane worlds of surrealist painting. Symbolism and pop art meet on common ground. Prepare to be shocked, delighted, amazed in this enchanting feast for both the eye and the mind. Macabre is on view with free entry at Christie's King Street Galleries from Halloween until the 9th of December. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is Bloom Cardenas, none other than the granddaughter of the artist we are very excitingly speaking about today, the trailblazing French-American sculptor, painter, performance artist and more, Nicola de Saint-Fal. Born in 1930 in France and living throughout the 20th century between America and Europe, she passed in 2002, Sam Fowl is one of the century's greatest creative personalities, pioneering not only the boundaries between painting, performance and conceptual art in Paris during the 1960s, but exploring large-scale immersive environments through her joyous, glittering sculptures, including the Tarot Garden in Tuscany, my absolute favourite place in the world, or her 1996 work at Moderna Musite in Stockholm on the cathedral where visitors would enter through the giant open legs of one of her nana figures. Bloom Cardenas has been instrumental in the legacy of Nicola de Saint-Fal. Born in Bali and raised predominantly in Paris, from 1985 to 1990, Bloom worked in the archives of her grandmother, Nikki de Saint-Fal, and in 1997 moved to San Francisco to help organise Saint-Fal's archives there. Since 2002, she has been a trustee for the Nikki Charitable Art Foundation and she is also the president of the beloved Tarot Garden in Tuscany. Recently, Bloom has focused on major retrospectives of her grandmother at the likes of the Grand Palais in Paris and MoMA PS1, as well as the staggeringly brilliant Venice Biennale of this year, where Nikki's glittering sculpture, Gwendolyn, was pride of place. 
Bloom Cardenas, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm very moved. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Honestly, I should add that I've been asking you for years for this. So it is such an honour to speak with you truly. I know you knew Nikki well, and I can't wait to get into her more and explore her fascinating life and pioneering spirit. But I'd love to start with the work. Whenever I see a sculpture by Nikki de Samphal or enter the Tarot Garden in Tuscany, this incredible paradisal sculpture park filled with these colossal nana-style sculptures of these bulbous women glittering in the mosaics, I feel this total sense of joy, of life, of this spirited energy that exudes freedom and liberation. But they also have this quiet power, as if upending the traditions of sculpture as we know it, with these voluptuous women as a form of protest. So I want to start by asking you, how do you feel when you are confronted with a work by Nikki de Samphel? Well, it depends which works. Obviously, the Tower Garden is quite special. It's her grande oeuvre, her life work. She did so many works for this work to exist. It's a real privilege to be there and to have the responsibility for it to be there in the future when none of us are still around. Obviously, I'm completely biased, but it is one of the major works of art history because it draws on art history and it's very generous of it considers its public. I mean, she was brilliant. Again, I'm very biased. But she was brilliant in that from the start, she was considering how this could exist in the long term, realizing that with time, there would be more and more public. And as she wanted the public to be able to touch it. So there were all these issues of conservation. She was just like so aware of how things would become. She was very much a medium in many ways and it shows repeatedly in her works from her early tears where you have dragons on the city and airplanes attacking skyscrapers when 9-11 happened it, we were all a bit taken aback she had this medium quality to herself I always say she was a magician as a grandmother but as a person or a sorcière, a witch, but I mean that in the medieval way, in the way of women who had power, the women who had knowledge, not in the way the Renaissance rewrote history, but these women who knew all about the plants, who knew about the light, the stars, all these things which made them so dangerous. So she was one of these women with amazing power. So as far as her works, I'm always very proud. I feel very lucky. And with the sort of privilege you feel or the responsibility to share this. I think there is such a universal quality in her work as well, whether it be these tarots in the form of these sort of sprawling, colossal, nana-like figures, or even her drawings. You know, the way that she will write love as a clock, or she'll write our house, our bed, our dog, our cat, all these things. In this such beautiful handwriting as well, she has such a sort of distinct style. I always think it's kind of sort of French elementary school. Very much so. Yeah. It's, yeah, there is this... Uh, French elementary school, where they teach you how to do your letters properly in cursive. And then there's also this childlike quality, because she never lost that. Her playfulness is obvious, even in her love letters, or the love book, or so many of her prints, where first she's very honest, 
and shows what we prefer to hide. <laughs> yeah. But in a very sweet way also. Pretty naked, honestly. And there's no judgment. This is, you know, you hurt me, but I love you. And what will I do when you die or if you die? Oh, I'll be crying, I'll be crying, and then I'll move on to the next one. I mean, mm -hmm. she's got all these weird contradictions that, I mean, we can all relate to that. She just had even bigger contradictions than most people. But, I mean, it's like this magician because, you know, her work acts as a medium to life in a way. Well, I think the element of joy is almost like a political move on her part. I mean, she was funny, she was so many things, but she was super anxious, she had all her health problems, in and out of hospitals. So Joy, at some point, after dealing with her anger through the tears, she made a choice to bring Joy and not spread her darkness to the world. Like, there's enough of that. I'm not going to add to it. I'm actually going to be very controversial and talk about love and joy in a field where it's really not well seen because it's you know the art is supposed to be depressive and this mm -hmm. and that so she was sick and she had all these issues but she tried to share something else something intimate and something joyful but also I think very fierce uh, for me I've always said I get very annoyed with the term whimsical because to me all these nanas are warriors They're here to take over the world. They're just very seductive about it. And if someone was new to her work, how would you describe the nanas? <laughs> very colorful and sort of playing with you in how they are perceived. I also think like Nikki loved myth and created myth through her works. Even the nana and the how they came to be, I never sort of bought the story that it was inspired by Clarice Rivers when she was pregnant, even though there's truth to it. It's not only that, not for me, because, you know, first she starts with those tears. They're basically reliefs that she shoots at. And then she goes into these figures and she's using all these toys. Already there's this playfulness, but she's doing... All the birth series, many people have a hard time with. I love them. But she's not showing birth as either this, oh, this is so wonderful, you're bringing life to the world, you know, oh, blah, 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 blah. Nor this very horrifying depictions that you see in films. She shows both. Like, there's a playfulness, there's a goriness to it, and there's this half flat, half relief. And then these women come out of the surface and become standing figures. So there's like this three stages. That's why I don't completely believe in the Clarice story, mm. even though it's a great and better story. But artists tell you stories and it's for you to believe them or not yeah and also we all come to it with our own perceptions as well so when I'm in front of a nana I will think differently to you or you know that's the amazing thing but I mean were you always familiar with her work growing up how did you get to know Nikki's work or reconnect to it it was always there it was everywhere that's all she did all day long She was on the phone, she was drawing, there was stuff everywhere. When people ask me, what's your favorite? It's pretty difficult in the sense that it's like, what's your favorite 
treat, and I'm sorry to say this, but it was my environment. Nikki was everywhere, and she was always working. When she was having lunch at the table, she's talking about projects. And I think that's part of the magic also of her as a grandmother is that she would talk about things that would later exist in reality, but pretty quickly and often quite monumental. When she started building the garden, I was 10 years old. Even as a little girl, it's like, okay, I knew she was courageous. I knew she was out there and fearless. But now I don't know anybody as powerful as her. And that I, it was clear for me by age 10, 11, that she was just an incredible example, not only as a woman, but as a person to have in your life because she was fearless. She dreamed big, and then she made her dreams real. Yeah, totally. I remember when we met for the first time in spring last year, and I was like, what was it like to have Nikita Sanfala as a grandmother? And you were like, it was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> it was. And I have to say, she had a lot of guilt as a mother, and she had planned to be the best grandmother. And she you know, was very efficient at mm. it. I totally believe she was the best grandmother ever. And probably to a young girl was even better than she would have been to a young boy. I'm, I was very lucky. I kind of feel like she's almost like a sort of grandmother for all of us as well. <laughs> I think so too. You know, there was something about that. And I think what's really moving for me is to see the younger generations and how they get it. Because I always told her, like, so many people of your generation see that there's something about your work, but all the writings are boring. They're always talking about your stupid family and how you were a model. Who, who cares about that? What's important is what you do. And she would laugh at me because I was just like, these texts are all lame, honestly. And I could see that my generation was getting it much better. I will never forget an experience at the Pompidou of a about 10-year-old girl with her father in front of the bride. And the father was, you know, oh, this is Niki de Saint-Far, look, she's showing a bride. And, and the little girl starts breaking down the sculpture like an incredible art critic. Well, she doesn't look so happy. She looks like she's in a prison. I was just listening to this girl and witnessing the father who was suddenly realizing that his daughter was seeing what he hadn't noticed. And how was he going to make her feel better about what she was seeing through the sculpture? He was trying to sell her the Disney thing of weddings. And she was breaking it down like that. And so it was a real exchange between a father and the daughter and real love going on, but a real profound discussion. So when you say she's the grandmother for everyone, I totally believe that. And that's why I feel like I want everybody to love her the way I loved her. But I see that younger generations get her better than anybody. And that's really very moving, honestly. But that's the power of great art, isn't it? To sort of speak to so many different generations. I mean, I've been obsessed with Nikita Sanfal since I was a teenager. Just in terms of, I remember going to the Tarot Garden for the first time. First of all, you are embraced by these glittering mosaics. You kind of drive up this 
interesting sort of Tuscan hill. And then suddenly all these kind of figures start appearing above the trees and it's so playful. And it's a bit like being in a playground or something. But then also when you really understand the different parts of it, suddenly truth comes out. So yes, they appear like these joyous figures, but there's an element of truth as well. Truth about who people are and the cycles of life. Absolutely. And also, I think somehow the images of it do it a disservice. Mm. Because when you're there, there's the whole physicality and, and the, your relationship to body. Because you go in and out, under, above, around. You touch, there's this micro to macro relationship. There's all this crazy detail on the ceramics that's made. But the Sphinx, for example, every piece has a mold and then it's cut out to be the right shape and then cooked and then placed again and then glazed. I mean, it's a really insane process. You can see how crazy obsessive she is. But also, when you get there at a certain time and the shadows start coming out, you can see how scary it can be and the potential of fear and myth and fairy tales and Nikki loved fairy tales and she created fairy tales and there is her own rewriting of the world to help you understand your own life in a way. Totally. I remember actually I was lucky enough to stay on site in a house that looked over the tarot garden. And, you know, at one point it was just me and one other person in this whole sculpture garden. And as it's sort of lit at night and suddenly these figures are appearing and it's like these kind of monsters in your dream or something. Absolutely. Absolutely. <gasps> and Nikki was, she really believed that fear was a very important emotion and something that was often pushed aside when it is a warning and a lesson in life, and especially for young girls. All these fairy tales have meaning. They're about telling you a bigger story. It's about protecting you and avoiding certain pitfalls. So she read me Edgar Allan Poe. She read me all these stories, and she had this great voice and these big eyes and love scaring you mm. because she thought it's important to learn how to deal with your fear and learn when it's important to listen to it and learn the difference between when your fear is a warning and when your fear is a story you're telling yourself. These are two really great lessons I am very thankful to her for. She did scare the shit out of me <laughs> when reading stories. But great, but that's what, you know, the power of storytelling, isn't it? You're supposed to be freaked out, you're supposed to be scared. Yeah. But I would love to go back to her beginnings just to sort of understand the world that she grew up in and, and you know, how she got to art. So Nika de Saint-Fau was born Catherine Marie Agnes in 1930. She was the second of five children and she was born in a suburb outside Paris. Her mother was American and her father was French and the saint were the 13th oldest family in France. I mean, tell us about her family and her upbringing. Was art always present in her life? No, not at all. I mean, you know, it's a pseudo-aristocratic bourgeois family. So Nikki is of their five siblings, as you mentioned. She's the only one born in France. So from the start, there's like a differentiation between her and the rest of her family. Her brother, John, was born in New York. Then her mother found out 
when she was pregnant with Nikki that her husband was having an affair. And so she ran away to her parents' place, who were from Georgia, but had bought a castle in France to look more, you know, <laughs> yuppity, <Bourgeois>. exactly. <laughs> and so she ran away there and had her baby there. And then she left the baby there for three years with the grandparents and returned to New York with the husband and then had three other kids. So by the time Nikki returned, I believe Claire was already born. So she really had that sense of abandonment from her mother. She mentioned repeatedly how she was born with the umbilical cord wrapped twice around her neck so that from the start, the mother-daughter relationship was complicated. The mother kept telling Nikki that the family had lost their fortune while pregnant with her. It's like everything was her fault even before she was born, which made a very complicated relationship with her mother, whom she adored and hated at the same time. She talks about this idea that her parents were both fervent Catholics and monstrous parents. But also, I guess, maybe from an early age, did she realize that she wanted to break out of this strict upbringing? Because, you know, she says, I would reject your system of values and write my own. But how extraordinary to kind of know that when you're young. Well, I think I would give credit to her father. Her father truly believed in her and sort of pushed her. And she always said to me that one of the reason she was able to be strong was because her father believed in her. Mm. He just, like many other myths, fell in love with his creation. Uh, this is uh, as typical as <laughs> mythology, you know. From uh, Hindu to Greek mythology, it's part of the stories. I think he pushed her rebellious. The mother didn't at all. Mm. She was more embarrassed by Nikki's wild and free spirit. But very young, she was writing plays, drawing books, and just being a bit of a wild child. Got in trouble for... <laughs> uh, she did love to brag about that. Um, I love this idea that, you know, she got expelled from both Catholic schools and then she was again expelled for painting the fig leaves on a school's classical sculptures red or something. <laughs> exactly. She did love... She was very proud about that story. And, you know, and it's funny when your grandmother is on one side telling you, you have to go to school. And then she's telling you how she got kicked out of school regularly. <laughs> like, OK, you're being inconsistent. But I guess it's part of the story. But it is interesting to kind of have that recognition, I guess, about like patriarchal systems so early on. I mean, this is an amazing quote by her. She says, as a child, I was unable to identify with my mother or grandmother. They seemed to be a pretty unhappy bunch. Our home was a constrained, a cramped room with little freedom or private life. I didn't want to become what they were, guardians of the hearth. I wanted the outside world to belong to me. I learned at a very early age that men had power and that is what I wanted. Yeah. I mean, she this is like the power. 40s. Yeah. Extraordinary. Well, because, again, there's this that contradiction from mm. the family from the start when they're kids. And there's no difference before she becomes a beautiful young girl, they're the same, her brother and her. And then suddenly, all of that potential freedom and power and adventure is taken away. And no, of course she doesn't want... Her mother was extremely beautiful and was stuck in being beautiful. I mean, Nikki was on the front cover of Vogue in 1952. Yeah, but she was using it as a means to get herself out of that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It was not at all as this was her only power. No, that was one power she was going to use to get to what she wanted. And she was going to use 
all her different powers. You know, she was not going to be stuck like her mother and all the women she saw around, which she did find pathetic. When she knew they were so much more, I mean, that's why she found it pathetic because she could see that there was so much more. It's fascinating and sort of a tale as old as time in a way. In 1948 at 18, she eloped with the author and childhood friend Harry Matthews. And in 1952, she moved to Paris to study theatre while he studied music. I'm aware that they had quite a tumultuous relationship and marriage. And after becoming unwell, she actually underwent electroshock treatments and psychoanalysts at a clinic in Nice. And am I right in thinking that here she was encouraged to paint by doctors and this was her route to art? So not by doctors. Okay. By friends. Ah. By artist friends from Mallorca. So before things really unraveled. Mm. So they both ran away from the States. It's the McCarthy era. They read Invisible Man. They're sort of realizing a lot of things that go in that sort of hypocrisy. And they want out, like many people, they become expats. I mean, they've traveled all over Europe. You know, they would go to every church, really for the art, not for... <laughs> not Religious for, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's really for the art, for the architecture, for discovering and for their education. My grandfather, Harry Matthews, came from a family of Europhiles. So his mother and grandfather knew everything about Venice, every church in Italy, all of this. And they spent some time in Mallorca, in Dea, where Robert Graves was staying. So there's like all this culture and education. And, you know, he wrote the White Goddess book. Again, myth. Mm. is important. So yes, as far as the doctors, definitely not helping Nikki at all. It's these friends and told her, you know, don't go to art school. I mean, he brought her pens and paper and she started drawing. And originally she was supposed to stay there for two years. She had 22 electroshocks, but she did say it helped her. So whatever works, you know, she was a bit intense. (laughs) (laughs) But he really encouraged her. And in six months, she was out of there. And that the doctors were blown away with. But Nikki was a phoenix. She died and resurrected multiple times and transformed herself every single time. We did call her the phoenix. And in her work, there's a lot of birds. To me, the bird is maybe her more than anything in the works. The bird is Nikki because there's this desire of freedom and this potential for freedom that, well, we can't fly, except in airplanes. (laughs) But I love this idea of shedding and renewing and actually the power in that as well. It's nothing to be ashamed of at all in this idea that you can renew and renew and renew. And actually the fact that she did that is also an incredible example of just someone who just kept on going no matter what. And she often said that was one of the problems with her market is that she would do one thing and then she'd take a right turn completely and... Not cool for the market because... But who keep... cares about the market? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it depends yeah. when, because when she's building the tower yeah. garden, she's always looking for funds mm. because she needs to build that. And she's a fierce independent and will not have anybody else except a few friends who did help her. But other than that, it's all on her. So made it complicated sometimes. Yeah. But it's funny when you say shed, suddenly, of course, snakes shed their skins. Too. Yeah. And snakes appears all over her work. Yeah. How incredible. And 
I love this idea of art having this redemptive power as well and art having this sense of healing. Like I really feel that there are magic qualities to being completely immersed in art, whether you're appreciating or doing it yourself, then it really can help you. But I mean, between 1954 and 1960, she lived in Mallorca and this is when she discovered the buildings and broken plate mosaics of Gaudi. You know, she says, I love this. Gaudi became my master and my destiny. And if anyone's listening who's been to Park Güell in Barcelona, they will understand that, I mean, it's very much like when you go to Nikita Sanfal's Tarot Garden, you are immersed in this person's vision in a kind of Gesamtkunstwerk, total work of art. I mean, what impact did something like this have on her? Well, clearly it was a eureka moment. Yeah. That was a life-changing moment. That and the Facteur Cheval also, who was this postman who built this huge castle on his own. And so it's like the will of one person because Facteur Cheval did not have patrons. So those two and the Watts Towers, these are the three masters for Nikki in the sense of the who, why, and how, and why this tarot garden. Except she wanted it to be based on esotericism. But there's this sensuality with Guell that is quite exceptional. There's a relationship to public that I think is very similar to Nikki's in that it's a welcoming place for all ages. And that is like this non-discrimination thing that is very important to Nikki from disease to sex to race. Like from the very start, this is an issue that she addresses. And in a park, it's for everyone. Yeah, I think it's so important, you know, going into public space because also it's like artwork behind a museum door or something can all, you know, shut people out because art has been seen as this elitist establishment. And actually when you bring it to the public, you know, everyone sees it. Everyone feels like they can be involved with it, especially with her work that exudes such joy. It becomes part of you. It becomes part of the landscape. I mean, I think it's clearly one of her big, big, big plus is yeah. the color, the playfulness. Her first public art is the golem in Jerusalem and is this big playground Yeah, with three slides yeah. for the <laughs> three monotheist religions, yeah. you know, and so kids playing. Again, she's like there's no discrimination with her public. She wants children mm. to appreciate it. She wants kids not to be afraid of art and not feel like it's not for them. It's for everyone. I mean, I think great art is understood differently at different ages. Mm. And the same with poetry. I mean, you know, I mean, art in all of their forms. You understand great poets different way when you're eight years old, when you're a teenager, when you're in your 30s, and later on too, mm. you know. And that is why it resonates and it stays through time. It's because it's still meaningful and tells you a different story at different ages and stages of your life. Totally. But I mean, in Paris in the 1960s, you know, this is post-war Paris that she was living in in the 1960s. I mean, real kind of desolate place. And it was kind of the age of nouveau realism and all these kind of experimentations going into performance art. And what's extraordinary is this is where this sort of post-war Paris is where she really, you know, began her shooting paintings. And I think it was in February 1961 that she invited friends to, you know, a back alley where they kind of violently shot canvases with bags of coloured paint that exploded and dripped onto a plaster surface. I mean, how did these shooting paintings come about? Because these really, they were like nothing ever before. I think what's fantastic is that things happen simultaneously yeah. at different places at the same time. Some things are just in the air at certain time. But Gutai, 
was very important, obviously, to the new realist. Mm. Gutai was a break between suddenly for the first time and for a short time in history, Japan had no emperor. All the rules were broken. Everything was possible. But the Gutai gave a sense of freedom that was way beyond America because it was really breaking in tradition. And it's the beginning of America becoming the most important dominant culture, how to make it sexy. And Rauschenberg arrives and blows everybody's mind with his poetry. Yeah. And for good reasons. So in a way, new realism is trying to make Paris still relevant. People forget that there's the war of independence with Algeria going on. So there's this real tension in Paris. The war is not completely over. There's colonialism and decolonization going on. And bombs are blowing up in Paris. But it's like very intense for people living there. You know, when you kill 300 people in one night and throw them in the Seine. I mean, it's just really insane when you consider today would be a bigger reaction than there were at the time. And so how do you do when you're just coming out of a war and there's all this tension everywhere around you? Obviously, you got to find a way to expel it. And then there's something also that I'd like to point to because in the tears she did, there's a whole series called Old Masters. And this only happens because of the war, because there's all these frames of old masters that have been taken away from paintings to save some painting during the war. So you have all these frames all over the city. Like you have all these incredible images of the Louvre when they emptied it before the Germans arrived. We don't remember because we weren't born or we weren't there. And we romanticize a lot of things. Yeah. It was not a romantic time. It mm. was a super violent, dreadful time. Then you have 68 happening for good reasons because everything needs to blow up in people's mind because the young people are not going to deal with all this crap. Mm. And the world needs to change. I mean, I've never really sort of thought about her shooting paintings like that. I mean, this idea of the frames and this absence and also the shooting paintings, you know, literally physically blowing up these balloons with paint. It's as though it's like blowing up all that art that was destroyed and everything. Absolutely. But also she's upending what we consider art when she actually herself becomes a tool as a performer in the artwork, which was one of the first time ever. Like you said, it was inspired by Gutai, this new way of thinking. Well, I think that's one of the really amazing thing of the new realists they had again simultaneously as pop is about to come in the states they are aware of the image of the artist Yves Klein he dresses up in a suit for his performances like that's not the way he dressed normally but so there's this whole show Mm. that we're going to give you. You want us to give you a show? We're going to give you a show. It's just a very different one. We're not going to have a beret. We're going to show you how the world is today. And we're going to use the things and the objects and the tension of today and put it into acts. Mm. Yeah, extraordinary. They were great. I mean... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just so avant-garde on so many fields i just think they're fantastic yeah but also <laughs> taking these objects or these tools that actually were used in the war and then applying that to painting is extraordinary but and by mixing them with toys yeah 
I mean, it's so political and also just the fact that she was born when she was and lived, you know, her life sort of ran concurrently with the 20th century. And with that came so much change and so much political fervour and everything. But I mean, from the mid-1960s, she abandoned her shooting paintings for her nana sculptures, these voluptuous and bulbous figures that reclaim, I think, uh, the female form and celebrate the everywoman. I love this quote she said in 1972. Why the nanas? Well, first, because I am on myself, because my work is very personal and I try to express what I feel. It is the theme that touches me most closely. Since women are oppressed in today's society, I have tried in my own personal way to contribute to the women's liberation movement. I mean, what prompted her first nanosculptures? Because these are just such iconic figures of these bodies that just appear in all different shapes and sizes. I think it's through the tears because she starts making more and more reliefs and it's getting more and more figurative. Then she does all these birthings, and then she goes and does the brides. She's basically deconstructing all the roles of women, and eventually they become nanas. Also, at the time, the biggest image, what is most celebrated, is Twiggy, who does not look like Nikki's sculptures. And Nikki is physically much more like Twiggy than her sculptures. She was kind of envious, honestly, I think, of women with big curves because she could not put on any weight between all her health issues. That was the way it was. I think she just thought we we're amazing. And like, instead of having be like always in sort of vampy, abandoned, no. We're going to be like these super sexy, active, multifaceted, multifunctioning creatures that we are. We do this, we do that. Okay, let, let, again, for me, it's an army of women. Yeah, I love that idea. Coming to take over the world, but we're going to do it with our own tools. Yeah. A lot of it is seduction and sexuality. And so it's, again, it's like claiming also this objectified woman and using the sexuality in a pretty aggressive form. When she's making these nanas, it's all bad taste. The pop has not taken over the world yet. You don't see Coca-Cola everywhere. So you don't have red, blue, yellow, the way we do see it now and we're used to seeing in the streets, on shops, on advertisement. No, 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 in France. And it's also like another way to be provocative, also with her family and her background and all of this. It's like these nanas are pink and yellow and brown and all colors that you're not supposed to put together. And honestly, as a kid, sometimes I'd be like, how does she put these colors? Like, I don't even understand where that comes from. Like, yeah. Because it was always like the last color you would think would go next to is the one she would put in. It was so natural for her. It was pretty amazing. Mm. But I love this idea of also the nanas taking that place of the historical classical sculpture as well that we so often see, you know, the man on the horse, the equestrian, you know, and that, that's what sculptures are made up of in our societies, well, especially in when we are in London and Paris as well. And actually, it's like when you replace that sort of triumphant man with a free, liberated nana, it changes so much. They become this kind of universal icon for all different genders, for all different body types, Absolutely. for all different backgrounds. And I love the fact that they take up so much space as well and it's as though they kind of block your eyesight in certain places because you can't even look behind them because they're claiming Too that big. space yeah <laughs> literally yes. but it's just joyous and in a way they're timeless they're not even rooted in background or culture or age they're just about celebration 
and liberation. And they're timeless because yeah. of all the Venuses. Yeah. And then you've, you've seen on the Sphinx this homage to all the different Venuses and the Dian and all these symbols of womanhood. And I would say even like the magician that comes out of the Papes is almost like Athena also being birthed from the head. Everything is, again, the myth and woman being the inspiration and the thing that makes the world go round. You know, mm. as there's this great film of her in like 61 or two or three, maybe a little later, where she says, if I wasn't making art, I'd be having a baby every nine months. I just can't help myself. <laughs> this is what I do. Yeah. I'm a woman. I create. I love it. But I mean, she really took things to extreme in 1966 with her temporary installation of an 82 by 30 foot reclining nana in Stockholm's Moderna Musite. I mean, this work she referred to as the grand fertility goddess. She made her visitors enter through the nana's vagina, perhaps remind them where they came from. But also once inside, they could enjoy a bar, an aquarium, a cinema, playing a Greta Garbo movie and more, you know, as if to sort of present the capabilities of women in a way. So th- this sculpture is actually kind of complicated. Yeah. First, it's a collaboration. It was made in secret at the Moderna Musette, nobody was allowed... A certain it was of, huge. Yes, but only a certain amount of people were allowed to go in there. And so Nikki is stuck with Pontus Hilton, Jean Tingley, Peter Ulvelt, and her. And they're fighting a lot about how to do, what to do. Supposedly, it's Pontus's idea originally. And so Nikki is very annoyed that, again, it's like all these guys are using the female body and her. But she's been talking about doing cathedrals and talking about architecture, and this is her first opportunity to do so. So it's a conflicting piece for her. Many times I said to her, oh, I so wish I had the opportunity to be there. And she was like, tough luck, you aren't born. This will never happen again. And many times I had seen people ask her, like, would you be willing to recreate? And she said, never. It was at a time and place, and it's done. So it was conflicting. In the PS1 show, there was this great work in progress poster for the Hawn, where she's writing to Clarice, of course. And she's telling her, look, I am so fed up with her, and I'm so protective of her. I want to shoot everybody who walks into her. (gasps) Yeah. So it's really very complicated. And so Greta Garbo, she was a big fan of Greta Garbo. And so you have a movie theater in an area. You have a couch for lovers in an area. But when the people are sitting there, there's a whole other area where you can hear what they're saying. So there's this lack of intimacy. There's so many things being said in there. There's Jean's machines that are breaking Coca-Cola machines repeatedly, massively. So it's not just about Coca-Cola and consumerism, but it's also the relationship to bodies. I think it's a really incredible, super important artwork, but I think it needs more focus, like more writing on this piece, because it's not just a celebratory piece. Like she got kind of stuck between all these guys and then owned it but it was complicated for her yeah i I mean it's a great piece i think it is extraordinary but i think this complexity is also what makes her work 
just deep and strong and moving because actually you might see these nanas, they might be exuding, like I've said, joy, liberation, etc. But there's a lot of sort of systematic issues and they actually kind of represent, you know, the history of patriarchy or something yeah. or how women have been oppressed. There are so many deep political subtexts to her work, I think. I agree. And, but what's interesting is her approach to not make women a victim. Mm. I think that's really important in those nanas is that they are free. It is their sexuality. It is our sexuality yeah. you are afraid of. Is because we are the ones giving birth. We have that power. And that is the scary part with patriarchy and this need to control the body of women systematically. Also, we're still stuck in the Renaissance because... In the Middle Ages, the relationship to bodies of women is very different. And Nikki was a great lover and had great knowledge of the Middle Ages. And it's uh, Jean Tingley who used to say, before the Renaissance, there's no word for art other than poetry. The moment it becomes a commodity is with the Renaissance and then it becomes art. But before that whether it's music, whether it's poetry, whether it's sculpture, it's called poetry. That's so beautiful. I know. Gosh, and that's so true. We are still sort of living in this Renaissance era. And I think actually what's quite interesting is that, you know, now in the 2020s, we're kind of breaking out of that. Finally. Because there's this whole myth that Renaissance was so great. No, Renaissance brought this sort of organized mind, how to maximize a situation for benefits. Mm. Not so great. I mean, obviously, there's lots of great things, but I think we've romanticized a lot the Renaissance, and romanticism is very dangerous. It's interesting, we had Marina Abramovich on recently, and she was talking about how the Renaissance kind of fucked everything up because it's all about the mind. And actually, it should be about the feeling and the gut. And totally. that, that, that's what it's about. I mean, for me, the ABC of art is about how it makes you feel and personalization towards it. And I think with Nikki, even if I don't know any background about her work, I'm drawn to it because it feels familiar. It feels like it just gets me in that gut feeling. Yeah, I think that that is her appeal is that it's familiar somehow. It's embracing as well. I mean, you want to touch it. Yeah. And Often you can. Mm. For her, that was very important, the fact that you could touch it. As somebody who had issues with touch herself, it was very important that you could touch her art. And this importance of public art also, so that it not be removed and boxed in a museum, as you say, where so many people are intimidated of going because they don't feel welcome. They don't feel like it's for them in the street. It's everybody's place. Yeah. A garden is everybody's place. So there's this thing, so if on top of it you can touch it, because it's not some precious metal or marble, which also you shouldn't be touching with your hands, you know. These are materials you can touch. Mm. And so it gives you another reading. It's the same way I said in the garden, you walk in and out, under, over, through, gives you a different relationship because your body experiences it in a different way. And when you touch it, it's the same thing. You understand something differently through touch. 
And also, I think climbing on something as well. You know, the, with the tarot garden, you go up all these different staircases and you go down these sort of mazes and everything. You get on a pathway and the pathway is inscribed with all these different poems and everything. But I mean, in 1978, foundations were being laid for this abandoned quarry in Garavicchio in Tuscany. And in 1980, construction began on the first architectural sculpture, the High Priestess. I love this idea that she sort of fulfilled this lifelong dream to live inside a sculpture. I mean, tell us about the Tarot Garden and the sort of inception and genesis of it. It was her destiny, you know, and she said it over and over and over again. But the more I think about it, I mean, she knew better, clearly. And it was her destiny. And I just read a very interesting interview of Nikki by her daughter, my mother. And the way my mother asked her and the questions she asked is like, why did you want to live in the Sphinx, in the Empress? And Nikki said it was like a rebirth because the relationship with her mother was so complicated. So to build something and then live inside of it with no angles, because she did mention she had been fighting angles her whole life, uh, was like a rebirth. And so this whole garden was a rebirth. And she created this family. I mean, she did that through work repeatedly. But what is so moving with the Tarot Garden today, still today, three members of the team have been there since the 80s. They helped build the garden. And so there's... All this effect, it's not just a job. They built this. They are guardians of the garden also because of the opportunities that Nikki gave them. Because at the time, there wasn't much else other than farming. And so almost everybody around has worked at some point at the tarot garden. And it's really sweet. You'll be at a restaurant and we'll be like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And they'll show you a yeah. picture of them, you <laughs> oh, know, in that. the garden in black and white in like 83 or in... And so I really, truly believe it was her destiny. I remember reading an article of hers in 1961, an interview where she said, one day I will build a garden. When I read this, I had slept in it already. I was 14 years old. And so... It, you slept in the garden? That's so cool. Yeah, it was my grandmother's <laughs> house. So when I went to visit, I'd, <laughs> if she didn't have a boyfriend at the time, you know, I'd sleep in her bed. I should also say for the audience, with the, uh, <laughs> the high priestess, each of her breasts is a sort of functioning kitchen and bathroom and bedroom. So it's literally a sort of like functioning body in a yes, way. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you walk in, in between the legs. And that glittering kitchen that's just made up of mirrored mosaics. I mean, it's like paradise. So at the time, it wasn't all covered in mirror. There was only areas. But it's really incredible to sleep there, you know, because you see yourself completely deconstructed. Yes. Many people could not deal with it because it's kind of <laughs> lots of different pieces. But it's pretty magical and in a way like a total freedom because you see yourself deconstructed. And so it's like, oh, I can be something else and I'm still me. I mean, that's the thing of the garden. You're supposed to go through this wall that Mario Bota built. So you leave the world of every day. 
you go through it, go up this hill, arrive in this area with all these sculptures of different scales. Some you go in, some you go out, some you go under, some you just watch or go around. And then there isn't a direction. There is no how-to. You go through it, and it's a promenade, esoteric promenade between nature and culture. And hopefully you lose yourself and you find yourself again. And that is the purpose for Nikki. This idea of tarots as well and tarots being the unknown and renew and shedding. And again, you know, it's like what people go to and the guidance as well. Absolutely. And we don't really know where the tarot comes from. You know, magic is still present there. I love when you say the people are still active, you know, from the 80s, because also what's beautiful about it is it's also a shrine to the people who worked on it as well. Absolutely. You know, there's someone who lost their life to AIDS during it, and there's a really beautiful chapel that you go into, and it's so moving. So the, you know the story of the chapel? Tell us. So Jean Tingeli had a triple bypass in, I don't know, 86, something like that. And so Nikki was at his bedside every day and then she found this orthodox church and she would go and pray every day and she sort of made a deal with God uh, that's how she said it uh, that if he she brought Jean back from this tragedy that she would build a chapel and there would be a black Mary in there just like in the orthodox church and so that's why it's under the card of the temperance, because as she said, she had problems with religion, not with God. Like the concept of God is not a problem, as she said, this this garden was her destiny. But she also believed like you make your own destiny. Mm. It's not a fatality that's on you. You have to be active in it. And so that's why making a deal with God, you bring him back, I'll make you a chapel. Deal? No deal. And so that's why there's a chapel there. And then when Jean came out of the hospital, the first thing he did was come to the garden and for three days and three nights, he built the injustice that's inside of justice. And in front, she wrote, Jean Tingeli built injustice and locked it inside of justice and threw away the key. And if you think about it, injustice is something everybody knows and feels in their guts. But justice is still something we're working on. So it's part of the potential of humans, but we're still not there yet. So as you said, there's writings everywhere. Nikki welcomes people in the garden with a little plaque where she's written the story. And then on some of the path, she says, I am the architect, I am the sculptor, but we did this together. Yeah, and she has everyone's names down, and it's Everywhere. just so wonderful. It's like you go in and you feel like you're part of some party or something. Well, it's a collaboration. She was a big megalomaniac artist, <laughs> but she wasn't an egocentric mm. artist. She was very inclusive and always curious. I mean, I just love this idea. You know, she said... With the Tarot Garden, I lost all notion of time and the limitations of normal life were abolished. I felt comforted and transported. Here, everything was possible. And I think you do feel that when you're there. It's like this place of dreams. It's genuinely my favorite place on the planet. I love I, that. I, I dream about this place. I'll come back. <laughs> I, I will. <laughs> but it's like this place of purity and happiness. And you just lose 
all sense of everything when you're there. I literally am so deeply in love with it. <laughs> oh, it's wonderful to hear it. This is why it exists. It's for people to have these experience and this love and realize that everything is possible. It just depends on your dreams and the scale of the dreams you give yourself and then just go for it and achieve them. And I think that's why it's such an important piece and will become more and more important in the future with time because it's a crazy, crazy adventure that gives a lot of hope, possibilities, dreams. It's a place of inspiration and it's also a place of meditation and again, this consideration of nature because you see all the wounded animals in there. There's all the ceramics about the clean ocean. There's really this sense of nature. It is a garden where no tree were cut. Nothing was cut to build a sculpture. All the trees were covered in plastic while they were spraying concrete. It's really... A collaboration with nature in a way. Well, it is a garden mm. before a park. It's a garden with sculptures inside. And that is very important. And so again, you see like her love of nature, of planet. Like, again, she's pretty avant-garde because she knows this is a special, amazing place we have, our planet. And it needs love and protection. And what do you think she taught you? I think she taught me a sense of responsibility and of this thing of privilege comes with responsibility. And so when you are lucky to be in this environment with these amazing sculptures, you have the responsibility to share them and preserve them for hopefully in 200 years, people can still experience this and have dreams and create their own world and share and be generous and share love and creativity and craziness, too. Wonderful. Bloom Cardenas, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank we you. do have one more question. Oh, my God. Which is, <laughs> if you could ask or say something to Nikki today, what would it be? I miss you. Oh. Thank you so much. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Woman Artist podcast with the fantastic Bloom Cardenas on her just staggeringly wonderful and brilliant and pioneering grandmother, Nikki de Samphal. I am so enlightened by Bloom's words and I hope you are too. As always, I have linked to everything in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nada Smanelic and research assistant was Viva Ruji. See you next week for the Great Woman Artist podcast and thank you so much for listening to today's episode. 